The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies. And fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Yep. And tonight, we're going to talk about the great universal force that shapes and binds us all. The thing that moves hearts, soothes crowds, and fights off massive alien armadas. Music. But how powerful is music, really? And how does music affect us? Well, to understand this whole idea, we've brought in a big fan of music history and culture, our friend Richard Mull. Welcome back to the show, Richard. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to this discussion. I think it'll be a good one. So, Don, you have a question about soundtracks. Uh, well, one thing I've um, always kind of wondered is about the, the nuts and bolts of, of how music works. Like, everybody will say, well, that sounds happy, that sounds sad. But what exactly is going on in our heads that makes us think that kind of thing? Well, you've got to, you, the thing is, Don, one of the things you have to think about is, and, and I'm going to refer a lot to notes from a, a, a noted music and neuropsychologist, Dr. Daniel Levitin, in a book he wrote called A World in Six Songs. And he basically talks about how we're hardwired, Don, for music. I mean, we are, we are hardwired to listen to music. We're hardwired to use music. You know, there have been brain scans that uh, have mapped out the different parts, areas of the brain that react and change when listening to music. Um, wow. I mean, one of the things to keep in mind, Don, is the misnomer. We we don't hear with our ears. We hear with our brains. Our, our ears gather and mm-hmm. transmit sound waves to the brain where they're recognized and understood. So... The, that is one of the one of the key things, and then our brain alters itself to react more strongly to musical sounds that are that are more meaningful to us. Okay. Um, and then our you know our brain um, is a changing flexible organs, so many different regions of the brain respond to the emotional and perceptual aspects of of the brain. So when we Don, when we listen to music, as I mentioned before, it's being processed in many different areas. Um, you know, so for instance, like the sensory cortex gets feedback from when we're playing an instrument and dancing. The auditory cortex is one of the first stages when we are listening to sounds and the perception and analysis of, of tones, the hippocampus, where we store our memory for music and memory for musical experiences and contacts, the visual cortex. We use for reading music and um, the cerebellum when we use for when we're for for dancing and for movement uh, and also for playing an, an instrument. The amygdala is we use for emotional reaction to music. The motor cortex again uh, is is another part of the brain we use for movement and tap dancing. 
playing an instrument. So there's all these regions of the brain that are working simultaneously when sound travels into our outer ear, through our ear canal, into our eardrum, and and then up in, into our brain. So, I mean, this is a dawn something that's still really in its infancy of, of study, as I said, the complex network of, of neurons between the di- different sections of the brains uh, are firing between the different regions. I mean, I don't want to get too too in-depth here, but yeah. So we, we have to think of ourselves, Don, as, as, as Daniel Levin says, of, of having what he calls a musical brain. And mm-hmm. um, the musical, we use the same ways that we use our brain to listen and process and play an instrument are the same ways in which we go about our our daily tasks in life. Right. So um, that same sort of, sort of processing it, processing and that, and that is that's you know that's been going on for centuries. It's part of our evolutionary makeup. And, so why, um, sorry to interrupt, but why yep. do they think that we evolved this way? Why do they think that we evolved the, our brains evolved to respond to music in this way? Why was it so important to our ancestors? Well, because of, because of the way we, we have interacted with nature. Right. So, so mm-hmm. earliest forms of, of music uh, were, of course, imitations of nature. Right. right, so hmm. music has been, music has been around. Well, there's there's an argument of either that music has been it predates language. Mm-hmm. So you know, early on, we were enthralled by the the natural sounds in our environment: thunder, rain, waves, bird songs, and we imitated those those sounds using mm-hmm. our vocal cords to make them make melody and make harmony and or also um you know then to tap out and to thump out, out rhythms using stone or the ground or putting those together and from then we you know we created in- instruments so right. i mean music has has it started off as being a survival tool mm-hmm. initially they say the earliest musical instrument goes back 50,000 years, uh, uh, Sylvanian nose flute, which wow. was made from the femur <laughs> of a, a, an extinct European bear. Um, and you, and you basically, you can look it up on, on, on YouTube and they've got a video where you huh. can play it. You basically, it's a bone with, that's been hauled out with, mm-hmm. uh, with two holes and you, you basically play it with your two fingers and, and play it. Um, through your notes, so it's it's a it predates you know the early the earliest recorders, um, the earliest uh, clarinets and 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 flutes, and you know, and we also you have to use think think also about the way in which you know drums were used as early forms of communications. Um, right. You know the 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 Yoruba tribe of from Nigeria. Um, you know, practiced the idea of rhythmic communication um, through the use of their talking drums, mm-hmm. um, and yet they could convey messages using the drums to to make them speak. So, right. um, you know, they had something called um, the, the talking drum was known as a dun dun, 
and these different patterns could be mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the the tones and the pitches would Im emulate different syllables so you you could drummers could convey messages up to 20 miles from one drum to another and and you know languages in the air are characterized by high and low pitches and well hold on a sec uh, then does that mean that the drums and the ins instrument influence the local language or vice versa or do we know well that's that's a good that's a good question rob i don't know that's a i don't know that's a sort of a chicken and egg question right i don't know which came first um the actual language or mm. or the are these rhythmic patterns but I, they are connected I, I, to I each other yeah i mean uh, Lebanon says that that the construction language. He believes that music came before language, and music mm -hmm. was again um, a way for you know building communities and uh, mm -hmm. and also passing information down. Right. So uh, you know we mm -hmm. so we you know we do that now through storytelling. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm I. I'm a little bit out of my depth. I I don't I don't know the answer to that question, Rob. No, that's okay. No, you're not expected to know the answer to everything. I mean, <laughs> you're already giving us more than uh, probably most people were expecting. But yeah. th those who listen but, to our podcast, anyway. Um, yeah, but I mean, the, the 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 key thing here, Rob, is you know at least according to Daniel, Daniel Levitin, is is to think that we we have always had a musical brain and mm -hmm. it's just evolved and developed over the centuries. Right. Um, so, and the, as I said, the same, the same cognitive abilities mm -hmm. that we use when we listen and make music are the same cognitive abilities that we use for in our everyday life for in terms of um, how we solve problems. Right. So music right. is truly tied in with our brain. We truly are musical beings, at least according to Levitin anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and, and we are a true musical uh, species and our brains have sort of co-evolved with the evolution of music. Hmm. Um, hmm. I mean, it's, it's always been a tool for us to communicate with each other. Right. Um, how we've done that, you know, it has evolved over the years. But but. Running parallel is it's also taught us to be able to problem solve and create communities and societies that that we have today. Mm -hmm. So Levin is very much about the functional aspect of, of music. Is is there a um now this is kinda gets at what you guys were, were getting at, but from a slightly different angle. Um, is there a process or a part of the brain that lets us differentiate a sound as music as opposed to language or a car accident there probably is don and i um i don't know offhand mm -hmm. i know that there um whether at least according to Levin, that our musical our brain ha can have three cognitive aspects to it perspective taking arrangement and representation so Right. He says that our ability to think our own thoughts, intentions, beliefs, um, like our sense of consciousness and reason, um, is perspective taking. Um, representation mm -hmm. is our mental states, uh, like desires, imagination, perception, interpretation. So if I show you a symbol of a heart, you know that means love, even though it's not 
a physical representation. It's not a representation of what a, mm-hmm. a, a real heart looks like. Mm-hmm. And we can't, we don't really know what love looks like. So the representation is like the world of the metaphor. And then rearrangement is the, you know, deals with structure and organization, the world of logic and, and reason and categories. So the combination of those three working simultaneously, you know, are, are, is necessary for us to process music. And 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 mm-hmm. and that it will come down to interpretation mm-hmm. and and selection of what we decide is a pleasant sound and what we decide is um, an annoying sound. Um, right. That would make sense because I know this is just me personal, but I assume it applies to most fellow human beings. Um, is that depending on my mood, music or different sounds can be pleasant. Or unpleasant, depending on just how I feel at that time. And so I would assume that what I consider music would also vary depending on my mental state. So yeah, yeah. Whether we know anything about musical notation or not, we've internalized the com- different components of music. So mm-hmm. if we think of music and this as a, a loose definition of music as as organized sound. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes from a definition that uh, an experimental composer, Edgar Varez, came up with. Music is just organized sound. But if we organize sound around a specific set of, of pitches that we use to create melody, rhythm, and harmony, and then we, we have to make a deci- set of decisions about what types of pitches are being used right. and how they fit together. And we, you know, in, in music notation, we assign a letter to those. Mm-hmm. And we call those letters notes, and we range them from from low to high pitch on a musical scale. So even and then from there we arrange them into then into melody, rhythm, and harmony. We internalize that organization whether we have any experience or not, just through familiarity and right. and our ability to mm-hmm. to be to use the different cognitive aspects of our musical brain, whether it be our perspective taken or representation or, or arrangement. So, right. and that, and again, whether, whether Don, we are conscious of doing that or whether we have any, any musical background, we do that when we listen mm-hmm. to music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, Richard, once you told me that we actually only use of the various sounds for music, we only use a very, very narrow spectrum of that actual range of sounds. And is it possible that we, we, we've come to just recognize that narrow spectrum as music, that anything that falls outside of that we would regard as noise because maybe it's unpleasant or something like that? We're, so basically when we hear that particular range, we think, oh, music. But when we hear something outside that range, we think, uh, noise. Well, what, yeah, well, I mean, if you think that, if you think, Rob, that, you know, music is, is, it's divided into, you know, into scales. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got a C scale that's made mm-hmm. up, of, that's an octave, you know, from C to C on the pianos, an octave is made up of, um, of eight, eight notes. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are now a set of rules, Rob, how you make melodic music using right. that scale. Mm-hmm. And when we hear music that pushes the border of, orders of tonality rob we mm-hmm. react harshly to them so mm-hmm. if the, if the music is not what we consider to be harmonious mm-hmm. then 
Um, it's noise. Then, well, it's it's not necessarily noise. It's just unpleasant. It doesn't. Right. It doesn't fit. Like mm-hmm. it, it it doesn't it doesn't fit. So, for instance, on on the musical staff, if you go from you know E to E again, the octave there are sharps and flats in between that. But you know there are certain notes that are that are acceptable that that go together. And we have decided that you know over over the centuries in in the evolution of mu- of at least Western music. Um, that these fit together, mm-hmm. and anything that it is not, we we deem it to be um, noise, unpleasant, unpleasant, yeah. and, and again, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not harmonious. Right. So through trial yeah. and error, basically over the centuries, we figured out what sounds nice to people and what doesn't. In a in a very general sense, though, I mean, let's be honest. There's some um, there's some Middle Eastern music that. Definitely does not sound harmonious or pleasant to my ears. But Rob, they're using a whole different set of tuning. They use right. a whole different yeah. no- musical notation system. So, right. so different different cultures have their different c- cultural approach to music, and they have a whole it's a whole different language and a whole set of music musical notation. I mean, our Western European approach to music has evolved over the centuries, and it's now. It's accepted as if you were playing music in in a school in Canada, you would mm-hmm. will follow the accepted rules of, of of what they call the the Western European method of of um, interpreting and playing music. So okay, it's just then, it's just but... it's so it may it may sound unorthodox to you, Rob, but it's uh, orthodox to. To them, it's uh, obviously orthodox, yeah. Yeah, because that's, it, and that's... Well, okay, yeah. that would mean then that some of our appreciation of music and the way we react to it is cultural, though. It's not biological. There's an actual strong cultural element to how we accept and interpret music. The way we interpret music culturally, yes, is absolutely different. But we listen to music in the same ways. Right. So, I mean, mm-hmm. biologically, we listen to music the same way. And we use all use... Similar parts of the brain, but how we come to to music, how yeah, we react I mean, it, to it, will change depending on yeah. how we've been, how we've learned to react to it. Yeah. Absolutely, well, this th- this part can be explained. Oh, yeah, and I I can I can give an example that I think most people listening are like okay now I get it. Um, it's the idea of uh, what I like to call geezerisms. Um, get off my every, lawn, like. Yeah, your your grandparents hate the music that you like, and it's because what ends up happening, young people tend to be where new ideas and trends come from, because when you're young, your brain processes dopamine, and dopamine is the thing that gives you a little bit of a high when you're exposed to something new. Mm -hmm. So that's why kids are more open. Um, If you talk about how you interpret, say, music from, from a foreign culture, you usually don't encounter that until you're a little bit older, at which point... Once you get in your like early 20s, your brain doesn't process dopamine as well. You don't get that kind of high. It's not that seeing something new isn't like when you're a kid. It's exciting. It's maybe frightening. Now it's just kind of a pain in the ass. You got to learn something new. It's not what you're used to. Mm. Your, 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 your brain chemistry, it doesn't develop the pathways needed to interpret this in, in any way meaningful to you because dopamine is the chemical that makes your brain do that. And when you get older, you don't process it as, as readily as you do when you're young. 
Hmm. Um, yeah, that may be true, Don. But I, I think Don, that's also it's it's difference in style. So yeah, um, and I think you're right. I think cultural experience and cultural exposure actually is is key. Um, mm-hmm. But I still think the relationship that your parents have to music, whether they listen to it or not, or my parents have, is the same as our relationship to music. Um, mm. Because, you know, our relationship with music, we find it enjoyable now because it was passed on by our ancestors who mm. found it enjoyable. And it, mm. it was, you know, passed on on in their genes and it will be passed on in our genes as well. So, so you're saying that there may be a biological component as well? Absolutely. Uh, there's an absolutely there's a mm-hmm. biological co- component. I mean, just as our brains have adapted and evolved, uh, so too has our relationship with with music. So, mm-hmm. you know, just as as we have evolved through evolution and natural selection, um, mm-hmm. so too have our brains. So. The the idea of the music people who had music brains, um, going back centuries, those with music brain music brains were those with a creative impulse, and mm-hmm. um, those who had a creative impulse were likely more successful through natural selection and through adapt adaptation. So the relationship between Darwin's theory of natural selection is tied in to uh, our inherent creativity. So wait a second. What you're saying here is basically ancient musicians got laid more, so therefore they (laughs) passed their genes on more. Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, That's been going on a very long time. Let me put it this way. (laughs) Uh, I'll put it a little more formally, Rob. Creative brains became more attractive during the centuries of sexual selection because they could solve a wider range of anticipated problems. And humans who happen to find creativity attractive may have hitched their reproductive wagons to artists and musicians because it conferred a survival advantage to their offspring. Those with wow. a musical brain were likely to be smarter, more attractive, more educated, and able to adapt, evolve, and even thrive regardless of the environment. Oh, so, nerds rule. So, Rob... Um, Holy yeah, crap, I, I groupies, it, are, it, groupies are evolutionary. Yeah. <laughs> So I, you know, when when I talk about the function of music, Rob, mm-hmm. m- musicians are problem solvers, and um, because of their inherent creativity, mm-hmm. uh, they're also social people. So musicians mm-hmm. are able to form closer bonds with those around them. So music is a social activity. Right. They're able to communicate emotionally. They're able to diffuse confrontation and and ease interpersonal tensions they so they possess strong survival skills that gives their offspring an inherent evolutionary advantage so making music holy crap makes makes them feel good so you know as i said to you before those ancestors who happen to feel good during music activities are the ones who survived the pass on the genes that gave rise to those feelings so musicians as problem solvers in in the in our history of evolution and adaptation they, there's all all types all kinds of uh, of research on this wow i had no idea now i really wish i joined band when i was a kid <laughs> damn well and, well, and rob you, we you, we know the way in which we use music not mm-hmm. only 
to pass on knowledge, but to also to teach us knowledge. Mm. So mm -hmm. think about how children learn the alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Yep. Right? Said D. Right? So I the did. alphabet song is one of the key ways mm -hmm. in which we learn knowledge, we pass on knowledge. Can you think of two songs that in which we learn about physical knowledge of the world? Um, head and shoulders, knees and toes. Yep. And what's another hmm. one, Don? Uh, another song. Of, oh, uh, that would be uh, the Insane Clown Posse, Magnets. How the fuck do they work? Uh, uh, well, I was thinking of, I was thinking of like <laughs> Wheels on the Bus or Twinkle oh, okay. or Twinkle yeah, Twinkle. But Insane yeah. <laughs> Clown Posse works too. Yeah. So I think about the way in which we use memory songs for learning sequences. Right. So huh. there was an old lady who swallowed a fly. I mean, they, they, the nature of songs, um, how we learn songs, how we learn, mm. uh, learn lyrics, how we memorize lyrics, how we're following the sequence of lyrics. I mean, those are all tied mm -hmm. to the way in which we use music to create knowledge, but, but also mm. to pass on knowledge. Right. Now, here's a complete side note, just to kind of derail this for a tiny bit. Um, I had always thought, in my naivete, obviously, that, but that maybe that music and poetry, like, evolved um, together or something to that effect. But obviously, they've evolved separately, maybe to serve slightly different functions, and we've just kind of brought them together. Um, no. Or, or, or am I wrong about that? Um. Hmm. No, I, I would say that let me let me get back to you on that. Okay, no problem. No problem. Um, let, Sorry, no. Let's I mean one of the things that both music and poetry have is they, they are both metaphorical. Mm. Right? So mm. um you know art is art is a a, a a metaphorical method of communication, right? right? So we we use metaphors to explain things in direct ways. Or to focus on, uh, you know, a specific aspect. Now, poetry does that, but okay. So here's the difference between poetry and lyrics. So just mm -hmm. to, the, so poetry is usually to be meant to read aloud. Song lyrics have to be sung. Song lyrics may have rhymes and metaphors, but they don't have to have them. Poetry we we convey an emotional message through meter and rhyme and metaphor and not all of those aspects have to be there in a, in a lyric right um lyrics yeah lyrics have to be accompanied by music right oh, okay. there's got to be that yeah. that framework of melody harmony uh and rhythm for to support the lyrics so lyrics right. don't stand alone whereas poetry stands alone it, it okay. you know it, it you it's, it's read aloud, and when you read lyrics, they don't have the kind of same nuance that that poetry does. So, mm. uh, you know, poetry, you know, they they both have song like qualities, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. but I mean, at one time, poetry, you know, was very much. What the pop, the pop, what we call the pop music of today, right? But but that quickly got um, pushed aside. I mean, poetry isn't as popular now. So right, 
Um, so we've traded songs for poetry. Oh, no, I was going to say, you guys have brought up a couple of uh, interesting points in the last little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the easiest way to think of the difference between, say, poetry and lyrics is that a good speech can be poetry. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have to be sung. Um, if I'm not mistaken, and you're going to have to bear with me, because this has been like a quarter century since I did any proper study of this. If I'm not mistaken, music, mm-hmm. and when language slips into music, there's more of a stimulation of what we'd consider the mathematical part of the brain. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, something like a good speech or poetry, it stimulates the language part and it stimulates certain parts of the limbic system that I don't remember the names of. But And this is where this idea of music being associated with, with learning that is it stimulates some of the higher functions, some of the higher reasoning, specifically like the math center. Yeah. And that kicks into gear and that starts a whole bunch of other stuff. But that's sort of the, uh, that's sort of the diff. That's if I remember. And again, it's been a long time. Um, that's what makes something more music than say speech. Yeah. Well, ab- absolutely, Don. And, and, and you've got to remember when, when, and you know, I mentioned this before, Don, when, when we're, when we're listening to, to music, I mean, we're using those three parts, those three cognitive mm-hmm. abilities, right? We're using the perspective mm-hmm. taking, we're using representation, and we're using arrangement. So mm-hmm. it, it, let me just give you, tie this in, Don. When, when, you, are, when you listen to a song, so if I, if, you, if I put a song on the radio, it doesn't really matter. It's just, just a pop song on the radio. And I ask you, Don, mm-hmm. do you know how the song is going to go? Even if you've never heard it before, you'll probably say, yep, I know exactly how it's going to go. Because you've already, mm-hmm. you've, you've, you've heard this type of song before. You already know what the structure is. And you've internalized the format. So you know that it will right. either start with a verse and go into a chorus. So it may go verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Or, or, or some, some, um, format you, you, you you've internalized that dog so you mm-hmm. you know you, you your rearrangement part of your brain has uh, has already anticipated and already has an internal structure built in to the song when you're listening to it right mm-hmm. so you um, you know you're 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 almost counting how long the song is going to be by by through your understanding of the, of of this structure that you have absorbed mm-hmm. right a pop song is has has a a, a certain time limit it has mm-hmm. a specific structure and it's got specific components to that structure and they may, may move around but for the most part it's a formula that works and right. and you've internalized that through multiple listening and even if we haven't heard a song before as you said we'll still be able to often guess yeah yeah so when you when rob when you listen to music from a different culture i mean there may be uh, some things that throw you off it could be the language it could be the tuning it could be the rhythm it could be a whole lot of a whole lot of things. So that that 
that, that are just unfamiliar to you. That's it's just mm-hmm. lack of a lot of exposure. They just could be unfamiliar. You're you're unable to decipher, and maybe and also maybe the instrument. Like you, you're just not heard either that instrument or those combination of instruments together. And they, right. again, the sound that they're producing through the different tunings and the different rhythms mm-hmm. is just foreign to you. That's 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 mm-hmm. just lack, lack of exposure. Well, I and I think that is a big part of it. I mean, you know, I uh, have because I travel to different countries and different cultures, and ex- I've been exposed to a lot of different kinds of music. And you know, some of it is just because I'm not used to it, as you said. I'm just is just completely foreign and uh, unappealing to me. But other stuff I've heard, and it's like, oh, okay, this is really nice. You know, and it just depends on uh, as you have said it just depends on what i've been previously exposed to and how it ties in with my own tastes in music i suppose and my own ideas of what music is yeah absolutely absolutely i just i just want to and i don't want to digress here uh too much i mean i'm talking a little bit about the musical Mm -hmm. brain um and the way we use it to listen to music and play music but as i mentioned to you before we also use the same cognibilities in our everyday life so the same skill set i mean the Mm -hmm. same sort of three cognibilities we would use to build an instrument Mm -hmm. so you know if i'm going to build a flute i have to imagine what's required in building a flute which requires which which representation i also have to have an intuitive and practical sense of of what will happen and when i carve holes in a bone that allow for a change in pitch that mm-hmm. involves perspective. I got to think about maybe even thinking about pitch mm-hmm. or tone before I put holes in that allows me to make the sounds. And then I, you know, and I've got to, uh, you know, if I, I want to play around with the holes and the sounds and that comes mm-hmm. like with rearrangement. So, you know, as I said, having a music brain is about problem solving. And when you're listening to a piece of music and playing an instrument, you are problem solving. Right. So when when so so Rob, when you listen to a piece of music that is outside of your comfort zone, mm-hmm. you're facing a problem. Never right. heard this yeah. before. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, what's going to happen? Is like what's going to happen? How is it going right. to develop? What's what's going to happen to the song? How long is it going to be? What's the shape? What's the contour? What's the flow? Mm. You know, is, is there going to be a solo? Is it going to follow the normal flow of a pop song? I don't know. And when you encounter music that you have not encountered before, you are mm-hmm. going through a process of problem solving. Right. That's interesting. Now, is that also because I know I've always heard, and maybe this is correct or inc- incorrect, that the part of uh, the brain that processes music, or at least a is it heavily involved in music? I should say, obviously, because it's your whole brain. Um, is the mathematical part of your brain that people who are mathematically oriented often tend to be musically oriented, and vice versa? Is that true? Well, I think there. there I mean, there is a relationship. There's absolutely a relationship between learning to play an instrument, you know, and and being successful in other 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 parts of your education. I mean that that's that's been proven to be the case right i mean if you if you okay i mean so it's not just with math Mm -hmm. but it's again playing an instrument 
what what's again, Rob? I get back to this core core question, Rob. Mm-hmm. What what is your chief aim in math? Uh, to solve problems. Yes. What's your chief aim when you're playing an instrument? Chicks. I was going to say uh, to produce patterns, but okay, we go with chicks well, too. Well, but yeah. recognizing recognizing patterns, being able to play patterns, yeah. being playing mm-hmm. patterns. Uh, that that form melodies, to play patterns that form harmonies, to play patterns of the form rhythm. One of the, the key things about mm-hmm. music is being able to keep time. What you, right. you yep. keep mm-hmm. time, you've got to be able to count. Yep. Right. Yep. You've got to be able to. I mean, music is broken down. Music is broken down in the to the building blocks mm-hmm. of of math. Yeah. Right. I mean, you. In, I mean, music, Western music is broken down in two components, pitch, mm-hmm. you know, and time, right? Mm-hmm. So when you, when you get the scale C to C, you're going from a low C to a high C or a high C to a low C. And all the, mm-hmm. and each of those, each of those pitches is, is either, either going up or down. Well, and time, and time is moving horizontally. So if you can't keep time or count count in time, then you're not going to be very good at music. Yeah, I mean, math, music, and math are are absolutely absolutely inter, intertwined. I mean, whole note is is it's four beats: one, two, three, four. Half note is you know is it and and so on. Half and quarter. So mm-hmm. you you know you start with. You know how, how many beats in a whole note? Four. How many? How many in in a half note? It's half. So, so if you mm-hmm. think a whole note is is one, half note is half, quarter mm-hmm. note. So, fractions are inherent in how you count and keep time and and, and how we measure rhythm in music. So, if you <laughs> you have good math skills. You'll probably be a good musician. At the same time, if you're a musician, you're probably going to be good at math at the same time. So early childhood education, learning to play an instrument at an early age, has, yeah, it's demonstrated you also have good math skills. It's why, mm-hmm. why we learned, we use knowledge songs for learning the alphabet on, and for counting. Right. So, mm, yeah, yeah, I mean, I you can't, I mean, people always think music is... Strictly about art, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. So the relationship between math and music—they're intertwined. They're definitely intertwined. Okay, okay. See that? Mm-hmm. Oh, that—that that kind of gets to a another interesting point that you guys have kind of brought up a couple times. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look back to, like, say, earliest societies, music and song wasn't for everybody it was it was the realm of kings it was for religious ritual so it was held by priests and it's it's nifty to note this idea that it it engages so much of the human brain that in our earliest days of of community there was a desire to hang on to it and that idea persisted a long time so that even today in a lot of places there's this idea that proper music is for the upper crust and what the common people like isn't real music. It's kind of this bastardized pop kind of thing. Well, that, yeah, but but Don, you got to, You also have to think that even first of all, music. Every culture at, at, at every demographic has always had music. 
Mm-hmm. So, yet you can think of the music for the aristocracy, but Don, early medieval music that was being played mm-hmm. for the kings and queens was this, mm-hmm. was was simply the same folk music that was being played for the the plebes as well. <laughs> so, because the, the, the early nomadic musicians that came out of the medieval ages and in, and in early renaissance, they were traveling... The, the traveling troubadours, right? So mm-hmm. the folk, they were singing folk songs. Now, the, the music itself was the same music that was being used for what we would call working class music. It's just mm-hmm. the subject matter was changed. So you would have folk music that was in celebration of the accomplishments of the landed gentry, right? Mm-hmm. But the music itself didn't change that much. I mean, one of, and one of the misnomers about classical music is that it it is music for the aristocrats. All uh, mm-hmm. uh, classical music is simply folk music. I mean, that became more complex, right? Right. So if you if you go back if you go back and listen to the music of Bach, you listen to the music of Mozart. You can find components of and, and influences of all the folk music of the time, right? And mm-hmm. and you know you later on when you find the music of Dvorak and I mean there it's right there. Like the the references yeah. are really 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 obvious. And and the other thing is Mozart. Don was making pop music for the time. I mean that's mm-hmm. the other thing. Yeah. I mean yes he was playing for the aristocracy. Yes, it was appreciated by the landed gentry because they paid him to write this music, mm, but right. it was it was still the pop music of its time. I wonder when you mentioned that if because um, in the Middle Ages uh, the the music was kind of um, you're right it was across the board there wasn't too much tech so you couldn't really have too much variety but the the musician changed because when you think about the bard and the troubadour and like they had the Icelandic areas had the scald. The idea was that somehow the people who made the music like that, they were somebody special. Cause that was like in, um, in Europe, you, you couldn't touch a bard. It was considered, even if you were the King and he did a song about what a fat ass you have, you couldn't touch the bard that there was something sacred about them. Well, a couple of things. I, I think I got to back up. First of all, the music in the middle ages was all church music. Yeah. So, um, so the only music being made in the Middle Ages was being made by the monks. So, mm-hmm. so when we think about the Gregorian chant, which it, so it was, it was less singing and more chanting. That is what the music that we would think of, of mainly the Middle Ages. It's not until the late Middle Ages and an early Renaissance period that we we start thinking of the troubadour. Um, it, it depends, Don, on... I mean, you're talking about an assigned role for these musicians that only certain mm-hmm. people could be musicians within a certain certain types of communities. Right. I don't know enough about that. I don't know mm-hmm. enough about... I only know about the English tradition and the the musicians that that were the, the early troubadours. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so they were large, largely secular musicians though they were i i don't know if they had any unique skill other than that they could play an instrument mm-hmm. like i i don't know yeah. i don't know if they had a, a specific role in society other than as 
you know, as entertainers and storytellers. Because again, that well, they, remember that that's essentially what the troubadour is doing. He's singing, yeah, uh, singing, praising. You know, when he's entertaining the king and and queen and and uh, their court, he's saying about you know their ex, their exploits and you know making them singing heroic ballads, <laughs> right? Um, about yeah. about them and their ancestors. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, because they were basically the news, weren't they? That they'd travel around and they'd tell these stories, and that was the only way people knew what was going on anywhere. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Certainly. Certainly, music has always been uh, the, the oral tradition of of singing songs. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. They that whether with an instrument or without an instrument. I mean, people still today, Don, gather around a campfire and they sing sing a song now they may not be mm-hmm. you know communicating any any current events but they're certainly telling a story through music so yeah are they passing information on from one person to the other and would these troubadours be informal journalists yeah i would say so yeah yeah they would certainly be bringing perspective that uh if they're traveling from town to town that the people that they were they were performing to wouldn't have, yeah, for certain. Mm-hmm. Well, remember they'd also interact with the audience, especially before yeah. and after yeah. the performance. Um, before with the men, after with the women, um, and um, they would, uh, in the course of that, they would learn news and they would share news and everything as as they went along, just like any travel. But traveling merchants did the same thing, etc. Um, there are many, you know, any traveler back in those days was a source of information about, you know, the outside world. So they were very precious mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, absolutely. Okay. So how does music become a soundtrack? Like, why do we pick the music that we do for soundtracks? Can you tell us, mm-hmm. Richard? Well, I think, again, it depends on what we want to use it for. I mean, right. it depends. Again, it depends on what the music is meant to do. Mm-hmm. In in the movie, I mean, what is right. it? What you know is it? Is it is the music supposed to highlight joy? Is it supposed to highlight fear? Is it supposed to be comforting? Is it supposed to be playful? I mean, I think a lot of the music in in a movie would depend on the movie and would depend on on course, yeah. on what the the screenwriter and what the d- director have in mind in terms of what the purpose of the music is within the movie. So I, I think right. it, I think that's, uh, I mean, you gave me a, a general question and I'm giving you a general answer. Rob. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. I'm not being specific. At it. Okay. Let's, let's, let's rewind here a little bit. Okay. So presumably the idea of having music to accompany, um, we'll say drama comes originally from the fact that they used to use music as part of rituals. And then music would be used for acting things out back in the old tribal days, etc. And then eventually we developed musical theater eventually. Um, and, we, and even the Greeks, I believe had, had an actual musical accompaniment, I think in their theater, I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, but I'm pretty sure they did. Stuff in Shakespeare's time definitely did. And I know Asian theater traditions, many of them are like Chinese opera, for example, and such are very much musical traditions. Like music and theater have always gone together. So it's mm-hmm, natural. Yeah. So it's natural then uh, that um, when eventually we develop movies, we would actually start incorporating music into those performances. Like music would naturally, especially once we developed sound movies, I should say. Um, mm-hmm. Although, of course, I actually that's wrong. 
music predates predates talkies. It predates sound in film because they used to have the silent films and they'd have someone doing a piano performance right next to it at the same time. That's right. Um, yeah. They would use music to accompany it. So right. already they knew right from the very beginning that even without voices, you could use music to actually accompany a film and to enhance it or improve it in some way. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that definitely goes back right again. They've just taken it from theater tradition, I assume, and just kind of overlaid yeah. it. So I guess there was a long history probably for them to draw from as far as that goes. Although I would assume a lot of the music that they used back in those days, now this is a guess, you may or may not know the answer to this, I'm just tossing it out there, would probably have been classical music. They were probably using a lot of classical pieces that um, because that often goes well with piano music or the simple uh, music that, to accompany film. At least that's what I've always seen it portrayed as anyway, that music in early uh, silent films that was accompanied almost always seems to be classical in nature, what we would consider classical anyway. Yeah, I think, part. Rob, I, again, I think it, it would, de would depend on the genre. So, right. um, yeah, if you are, you know, if it's highly dramatic, yes, mm -hmm. I could, you know, I could see you relying on something that was definitely from the 19th century, uh, right. late 19th century romantic period. So, right. um, and, and we still, we still draw on that type of music for our, our dramas today. So mm, yeah, your favorite movie, what, what are the music traditions of your favorite of, of Dawn's and yours, Rob's favorite movie? Where did, oh, I mean, what tradition is it? What tradition is John <laughs> yeah. Williams drawing from? I mean, he's drawing um, from Holtz. Yep. He's drawing from Wagner. He's drawing from Mahler. I mean, he's drawing from uh, definitely. Yeah, uh, there's there's some Beethoven there, of course, but mm -hmm. he's drawing from a late nineteenth century romantic tradition. Why? Yeah. It's you know it has what what, what they call the Sturm und Drang. You know, mm. it it's lots of lots of intense, epic, mm -hmm. deeply emotional and deeply dramatic music. Yep. And I would actually hmm. say, if for me anyway, and again, I was exposed to it at like seven, seven or eight when Star Wars came out, I think seven. Um, that was the first movie that to me made me aware of movie music. Like prior to that, it was just background material. But the mm -hmm. Star Wars theme and just, yeah, this, especially the Star Wars theme, of course, um, <laughs> and the uh, later on the Imperial March and etc. were the music that actually made me aware of music as an element of film like prior to that i wasn't aware hmm. of it as a you know as a young as a child um it made such an impression on me that uh that was what led to an interest in movie music and soundtracks later in life um yeah yeah, yeah. And, and, and and if you and if you think i mean if you think about the imperial march very mm -hmm. much influenced by gustav holtz mm -hmm. uh planets right yep. you can i mean oh, yeah. you can yeah. You can absolutely hear that in it. Very. You, you're using influence in a very charitable way, sir. <laughs> no, I, 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 no, I think that, that I, Rob, if you if you listen to Gustav Holt's Planets and you listen to um, the Imperial March, you go, um, well, who's John Williams and what was he? Who was he influenced by? I mean, that's you know, that's kind of what I meant. 
That's that's what yeah. I meant, Richard. I I mean I mean uh, John Williams is uh is taking that music in the same way Quentin Tarantino takes you know certain short certain sources. Well, um, I think John Williams is a synthesizer. That's all. Yes, and, that, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And yeah, and, because, and and and, mm-hmm. and and credit to him, but you you know that he picked he picked those he drew from that musical mm-hmm. uh, tradition because it fit the heroic. Absolutely, uh, yes. Nature of, of the movie. Yeah, it did. Yeah. De- definitely, right? that's true. And, and if you're uh, going to have if you're going to have end of the world drama, you need mm. end of the world music. Hmm. Yep. Right? You, that's that's course, you know, yeah. when you when I mean when you hear the Star Wars opening, it is mm-hmm. it is like Beethoven's um you know, something from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, you know, it's mm. it's like you know Tchaikovsky's eighteen twelfth Overture. It's heroic. Yeah, it's, yeah. that's what you want. You you, you don't oh, want definitely. ambiguity here. You don't want people in doubt. This is <laughs> this is this is not a fight about. This is a fight about good versus evil. You need music that 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 decides. Oh, and yeah. it is. It definitely is. Right. Yeah. Well, there's there's uh the cultural bit to that too is uh. In the West, anything orchestral like that, we tend to associate with antiquity, with uh, permanence, mm. with big things that last throughout the eons. And then when you put that into a movie, it instantly gives you that sense of this is big, this is something like universal, mm. something that, that's going to matter for all of eternity. Gravitas, yep. Well, yeah, yeah, there it is. Yeah, and gravitas. Don, it's no different than 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 why was, why is Ian McKellen... Hired for every play Gandalf. Play Gandalf. <laughs> why is he hired to play Gandalf? Why was you know why is Patrick Stewart hired to play the captain? You know mm-hmm. why is Christopher? Why was Christopher Lee hired to play every major baddie for fifty years? Mm, you know he has. <laughs> it's whether it's the voice, it's the presence, it's that gravitas. Mm. I mean John Williams's soundtracks. To the Star Wars movies are no different than than you know the use of those soundtracks are no different uh, than why why these British actors are hired for all these uh, quote unquote important roles in these end of the world movies. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Ian McKellen screams importance. Yeah, John Williams' soundtrack, the Star Wars, screams importance. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's even got, as I said, it's got this similar open opening to, um, to a Beethoven symphony, right? You can mm-hmm. and you can hum it the same way if you you can hum, if you hum <laughs> the fifth and you hum the opening to, to to Star Wars, you they both they're both implanted in your brains because yep, they're both true. recognizable. Yeah. Because they're both instantly humble. Yeah, true, true. And of course, both of them have uh, shaped culture in their own way too. I mean, the yeah, the, the, definitely the Star Wars music shaped modern culture in many different ways, um, and shaped modern mu- movie music. I would argue as well. I mean, after Star Wars, movie music probably maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it didn't really change that much, but I would argue it it did 
well, okay, Star Wars changed movies to begin with, and then the music just kind of went along with it, I suppose. Hmm. But yeah, I, but I, yeah, but I here's a quite here's what I where I liked it. So what I'm mm-hmm. fascinated is the use of movie of music in in horror movies or suspense, mm-hmm. and I think that's. I mean, I think that's where we can actually talk a little bit more about um, um, music in the brain. Okay, so so what? So let me ask you: When one, what do you think are one of the ways in which music is used in 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 suspense or horror movies, and um, how do you think that might be tied in to how? Um, you know, we've used um, how would that it ties into our own survival skills? Hmm. I'd never thought of it that way. I mean, I guess we um, traditional horror movies usually have. Well, let's see. The music is usually uh, building in pitch. It's usually slightly higher pitched music because um, it's there to build tension, of course. Yeah. But how would that? But how would that tie into our survival skills? Into like that survival part of our brain? I've never thought about that. Well, think about think about a way in which we can use we use music uh, we use music as a weapon of fear, mm-hmm. right? You mean so bagpipes, yeah, through bagpipes. <laughs> yeah. You know the 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 marching bands that used to uh, go into battle ahead of of the troops. So mm-hmm. the large marching bands, the, uh, the, the, the terrifying drum beat would mm-hmm. instill fear into the opposing troops, the beat growing louder and louder and, and used as a, as a form of intimidation. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's the, uh, the famous example of Joshua fought the, the, the battle of Jericho. You know, yeah, but that was the, sonic weaponry. That's a tiny bit different, yeah. but still. Well, mm-hmm. but we still when we when music is building music in movies is used to heighten fear mm-hmm. and heighten and, or or another word for that, Rob, is to build tension. Right, that's mm-hmm. true. Right. So, but what happens with the tension mm-hmm. is there has to be that kind of release. At the same right. time, mm-hmm. well, if you're if you're in a state of fear, mm-hmm. you're in a state of tension, mm-hmm. right? You're in a state say, say, uh, of survival mode, right? right. Movie horror movies are are just a surrogate mm-hmm. for that feeling that we had earlier when we would have to be in a state of so. So, Robin Don, if you hear an unfamiliar sound outside your window, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's that's a sound of fear that already right. sets mm-hmm. up tension. You don't mm-hmm. know what it is, right? You don't know how you're going to mm-hmm. react to it. You don't know how long is you want to. You're you're going through a set of pro. Uh, you're going you're solving a problem. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're listening to, mm-hmm. to uh, uh, watching a movie, it's all about tension release and the music. Is yeah. doing the same the same thing. So, a horror movie is just is just a um, a fun way mm-hmm. of of going through that of being of scared, tension and release. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the music should should 
should highlight. It should be do its best to to highlight the psychological um, experience that you you undergo when you hear a familiar sound outside your window. Just as mm-hmm. you jump when you when the the you know the the villain you know um, scares you in the movie. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it so it's all, it's just about it's yeah, again it's just about survival skills. Mm. So and and tension that, release is it is just as important. Um, it is essentially in in and how we listen to music because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, we use those same skills in our in our in dealing in dealing with fear. There's a cheat, though, when you come to horror movies. Because when you mention music and horror movies, I kind of got into them early. And I remember the late 60s, even going into the early 70s, there was a tendency that, because horror movies were for younger people, you'd introduce some band that you'd hope would take off. So every horror movie, no matter how tense, would have the scene where they'd go to like the club or the beach, and it's the jerk-off singing Sand Shark, and it would just ruin everything. But... You get to the early 70s, mm-hmm. and there was one, one film that did a big trick. And um, going to the early thing, there are certain sounds that we're hardwired to recognize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that fingernail and the chalkboard nose make, no, thing makes most people cringe. They found, they think why it happens is because its frequency is similar to like a crying child. Mm-hmm. And it, it kicks in this weird, because, you know, survival species thing. When you get to the early 70s, when they made the uh, the original Exorcist, they put a lot of weird noises that they'd play yeah, under they the music or that. Hmm. And it included things like crying children. They, I think a train crash was one. Bees. Yeah, bees. And it was this idea that you wouldn't be aware of it. They'd play the creepy music and you'd have this extra kind of little sonic poke at your uh, hypothalamus. That's making you uncomfortable, even though you're not exactly sure why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm. and 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 then Don, I just found something here that may help explain what you've just been talking about. There, um, there's a a neuroscientist named uh, I don't maybe not sure he's a neuroscientist or he's an anthropologist named David Huron, and he has a book mm-hmm. called Sweet Anticipation, and he says. <laughs> and his, his thesis is, how does he believe that the musical brain helps prepare humans for survival? And he has four steps, tension, reaction, imagination, and prediction, and which he calls trip. And a non-musical example of trip is, if we see a line, we experience tension. The tension causes us to react. If, if that reaction allows us to survive, we may spend some time imagining or recalling the event and planning appropriate action in event of a future attack. So um, if humans had a way to invoke the elements of trip in a safe environment, that would, it would be through music mm. and, mm. and the same way in which we experience tension and release in movies is the same way we experience tension release in, in music as well. Huh. Um, and I know Huron uses the, analogy of the push and pull of a coiled spring um and the way in which sort of music builds and you know so the the may you know music will will rise to will build to the climax so there's tension 
and then it will release, which which is the climax with the resolution in the end. So think about Don, um, um, the end of Handel's Messiah. Right. Hallelujah. Right. It, it builds and builds yeah. and builds and builds and builds. And then it explodes, and then it ends with this, you know, giant choir, and that's it. Hmm. Release, huh. that's it. And and the, you you, you have this emotional release, mm-hmm. and in, again, the music builds through peaks and valleys. You're you're on an emotional roller coaster, and when when it's the same thing, in which the way music is is used in horror movies. You know, it's, it's to, and, and we, um, we, we begin to realize, um, you know, music combinations of music that, that are going to build tension and, 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 um, and release. So think about another thing, Don, think about the tension release in a song like day in a life. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Right. Think about one of the most famous pop songs. What's the last two minutes of that song? It builds and builds with that swelling orchestra. Mm-hmm. And then what's the last note? Isn't that the guitar twang that kind of fades out? No, it's the, it's a sustaining piano. Oh. Okay. It's that sustained piano that goes for whatever, 20 seconds. Right? <laughs> yeah. And you go... Okay. It's that sigh. It, it's that musical sigh, that release. Mm-hmm. Right? You go, oh, okay. So the build up and then the release. And all our favorite music, Don uses tension release. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And it's just, it, we want that emotional ride because it's the same emotional ride that we use as part of our survival skills. I, I, I don't want to be confronted by a lion when I go up to my driveway. Right, we need just it. Not, not something I, I well, want to do. I'd rather just go mm-hmm. to a horror movie and have a lion scare me. You know, what's kind of interesting about all that is you've sort of explained the eighties. Okay, all and, of and them. This, this kinda because in a way, yeah. Basically, yeah. This could take a. It, it's a little. It's a little bit of a mental gymnastics, but okay. When you look at like how music is used in a horror movie, you could almost make the argument that in some cases the movie is just supplementing the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And in essence, what happened in the eighties was MTV took off. It was visual music, in which case the little mini movie, the video, was supporting the music, which is yeah. that same principle you were talking about. And that's that that taking that inbuilt need that inbuilt um formula reaction to to the music and that when you take it to the next step when you take it to uh include more of the mind i.e like the visual and the visual interpretation mm-hmm. you get the 80s yeah yeah okay. yeah i agree i agree <laughs> that is <Wow>. so weird <laughs> yeah i mean and, and i think i mean yeah do you have anything to add to that, Rob? No, not really. I mean, okay, huh? <laughs> no, I think I think I think I think I, I think you're right, Don. And 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 it's no surprise that a lot of horror movie music from the '80s is returning. Mm-hmm. 
So, I mean, it's funny, Don. I've been li- li- listening recently to a lot of John Carpenter. I found a, right. um, oh, I found okay. a best of John Carpenter soundtrack because I was I've always mm-hmm. a big fan of his his movies. Um, um, but I didn't know until about fifteen years ago that he did the soundtracks to all his movies. I think I did know mm-hmm. that. Yeah, he's actually yeah. a composer. Um, and I so I've been listening to a lot of John Carpenter soundtracks. So mm-hmm. things like Halloween, and I think he did the thing and Escape from New York. Right. And this is a guy Don who absolutely understands the idea of tension release, not mm-hmm. only in music mm-hmm. but how it fits perfect, how it cre- creates a, a cinema in the mind <clears throat> even before you um, you see the movie. Mm-hmm. Right, he he understands how to play psych- around psychologically with the music that would f- would only fit a horror mm-hmm. movie because it has all yeah. the tropes to it. Right. Yeah. Huh. Huh. That makes sense, and that's that's kind of gets a little more the same thing. Like I remember uh, a Ronnie James Dio in interview where he talked about that. He referred to making pictures in other people's heads, and that was the whole attitude behind the way he wrote his music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and, absolutely. And I think that shows actually. I think we talked about that once many years ago, Don. How Dio's mm. music tends to sound like soundtrack music without a movie. Yeah, that's the. Yeah. I remember we discussed that many years ago, where it's like, yeah, it's it's like it's a a soundtrack in search of a movie to go with it. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. well, well, Rob, there was a whole genre of music in the nineteen nineties. Post rock was mm-hmm. all was essentially what they called invisible soundtrack music, music right. for music made for a, a non-existent or soon to be, hopefully uh, existent, yeah, yeah soon to be made movie. <laughs> So if you mm-hmm. think about bands like, like like Tortoise and and a lot of the bands on on Thrill Jockey, you can say a, mm-hmm. a lesser extent, bands mm-hmm. like Bark Psychosis and Talk Talk, and I would say even a lesser lesser extent, a band like Radiohead, mm-hmm. um, even though they were not instrumental, um, they are they are they were heavily heavily influenced by soundtrack composers, Lyle Schifrin and. Bernard Herman, Ennio Morcone, um, and they're trying to reproduce. Well, they're influenced by lots of other, uh, lots of other um, musicians and composers. Other than that, but they were definitely influenced by soundtrack composers. And and when you listen to the music, it sounds like music for for a movie yet to be made. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, I can. Yeah, that's definitely true. Now, how did okay? So obviously, soundtracks then movies have had an influence on culture as well. Uh, well, we'll think about the opening to Jaws. Well, yeah, right. Think about the opening, right? Think about think about the way in which which the the music to Jaws absolutely mm-hmm. builds builds mm-hmm. tension, yeah. right? I mean it, it, you know, dum 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 dum, and then it, you know, it builds, and then you know that tension, and then there is that, there is that release that you know, like that, as I said, the analogy of a of a coiled spring, right? And when the release of the coiled spring is is, you know, when makes you 
makes you feel better. Mm. Yeah. You know? Well, you know what? You what, know that resolution. Mm. Yeah, it's it's weird when you talk about that because when you think of how many big orchestral musical soundtracks that are memorable that came out of the 70s. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like it, there was something in that era mm-hmm. that, because you think you mentioned Jaws, you mentioned Star Wars. Everybody, as soon as you hear like the old tubular bells, you think of like the Omen. Right. Or the Exorcist. Exorcist. You think, Exorcist, yeah. yeah every, it, you can start that, and somebody will start jogging right away. Like, that seems to be the first era where that was really kind of came to the fore of using the, the bigger, the better, the custom tailored music for your, for your film. Right. Oh, yeah. oh I, Don, I don't, I don't think it was just the 70s. I think that that's always been the case. If you go back and listen to the, uh, the Bernard Herrmann orchestral soundtracks for, for, um, for Alfred Hitchcock or the Elmer Bernstein, mm-hmm. um, Westerns, if you think of, um, I think that's always been the case. I, I just think that the 1970s, um, I, in fact, I would say the 1970s was almost the, the end of what we call the orchestral soundtrack until, mm-hmm. until Hans Zimmer arrived. Mm. Right. And now, I mean, and, and if you want to talk about music and culture, I mean, it's, it almost seems like every movie Mm-hmm. that I see that's non-action, non-sci-fi, uh-huh. <laughs> still has a Hans Zimmer soundtrack to it. Mm-hmm. Like those, those, those pounding, those, those, those pounding drums. Again, it sounds like, mm-hmm. you know, it sounds like a mauler. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, it's so ubiquitous. And, mm-hmm. and, it, and yeah. he's been so much, imitated um and yet you know i i know that his background is from prog rock his background is you know he was also a big ennio marconi fan and he was um he's also the funny thing as i was reading about the influences on hans zimmer they're um georgia marauder Mm -hmm. um like midnight express um ennio marconi and who was the other German composer. I wasn't Tangerine Dream. Oh, um, mm-hmm. Jean-Michel Jarre. Oh, okay. And um, and I know that and there was somebody else too. Um, that oh, Vangelis. So Vangelis, Blade Runner. Yeah. So yeah. one of his ma- so his major influences are Vangelis, Blade Runner, um, the Giorgio Moroder movie. What's that called? Midnight. Do you remember the guy who gets uh, uh, the movie about the guy who gets um, jailed in a Turkish prison? Oh, oh, is that Midnight Express? Midnight Express, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and you get Ennio Marconi, and you get the Hans Zimmer, and now every soundtrack sounds to me. Every movie I see, Don, you guys see lots of action movies. I don't, and yet I mm-hmm. still can't escape Hans Zimmer. He's everywhere <laughs> for me. He's everywhere for me. And I don't even go and see the movies <laughs> which he does the scores for. Right. So if you think of, so if you think about music and culture, he's like he's like the John Williams of the of the of the Knox. Right. Wow. So he's basically <laughs> he's become his sound has basically become movie music. 
it's just it's just how you do it now it's become part of the the cultural fabric i hear it i hear it in ads i hear Mm -hmm. it and the opening for tv series i hear it everywhere Mm -hmm. and and yet as i said gentlemen i'm not even going to see movies (laughs) which is movies music is even being used and i'm still going i'm still being zimmerified Right, <laughs> by, by Hans Zimmer, and no, with no disrespect to him, I, and, and I think that you speak about music and culture, and and how music becomes part of the the, the mainstream fabric. I think right. Hans Zimmer has replaced John Williams. No disrespect to John mm. Williams, but um, well, the yeah. John Williams sound is for a very particular type of action, you know, big blockbuster action type film. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, modern films, you're right, tend to prefer a slightly different style, which, yeah, basically Zimmer. Uh, Hans Zimmer became the standard after a certain point. You're right. I'm wondering if that's what happens. Um, Like we've mentioned before, sometime in the 90s, it looks like they perfected the formula. And a lot of what comes out is very similar. I'm wondering if that kind of thing happens because they found the guy, the specific guy to do soundtracks and it's it's why you see fewer and fewer names in in bigger entertainment because it's not that they're saying do something like this guy they're saying just get that guy to do yet another film well they're doing don they're doing both they're like can you you be like this guy Mm. which is or or can we if we can't get this guy which is why i think don there's actually in terms of soundtracks today if you want to talk about soundtracks today there's a movement Away from the Zimmer and mm-hmm. the Zimmerization of, of movies to um, to go to to making soundtracks that are almost invisible. I, if you think about, right. so let me give you an example of of an anti Zimmer soundtrack. I'm not picking on Hans Zimmer. I, I'm just saying. Um, mm-hmm. um, so does anybody remember? And the, the, I, I use the word remember advisedly. The soundtrack to the movie, what was it called? The the uh, what was the um, the old DiCaprio movie uh, that he wanted? Which one? To, what, what's that? The Renovant. Which one? He's been the Renovant. The Renovant. Does anybody remember oh. the soundtrack to the Renovant? I've never seen it, so I can't say. That's that's the one with the bear. Yeah, last year. Yeah. Revenant. Well, I would suggest every, Revenant, yeah. I would suggest you guys see the movie. And then mm-hmm. come back to me and tell me if there was a soundtrack. Because it won the best Oscar. Huh. Wow. For soundtrack? Okay. Yeah. And I bet nobody remembers it. And it was done by huh. two guys, two guys who are, well, one guy who does have a background in doing soundtracks, but it has, has, a, uh, who's, but is, has the opposite approach to Zimmer. He's very minimalist, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. very textural. And 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 almost the sound, his soundtracks are almost blend bleed right into the fabric of the movie, as opposed to simply. Hmm. Um, and so I, I I think that there there's a, a movement afoot to you know if Zimmer is a maximalist, a lot of people are going in a sort of very minimalist direction just hmm. just because. Um, you know, Zimmer is kind of like Wagner and Mahler at the end of nineteenth century. I mean. How big can you get? I mean, mm, yeah. I've, I've seen Mahler's Eighth, and there was there were two hundred people in the choir and a hundred people in the orchestra. 
in and there's no amplification. It, it mm-hmm. Don, it's big, right? The, <laughs> the sound is big when they when the the last two four minutes in the in the in the final movement, it it is overwhelming. Like it I just it, 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 right, and <laughs> it's and it's like going to see it. It's like, it's like a, a you know, it's like the conclusion of a Hans Zimmer soundtrack. It, it's <laughs> overwhelming, right? Right. But, like, mm-hmm. where do you go from there? Right. And that makes huh. sense, though. There's always going to be a reaction against any movement. There's always going to be something moving in the opposite direction. So that, that's reasonable. Yeah. So, hmm. anyway. Yeah, it's it's scary, though, because part of me wonders if, if what it is is um, they're kind of blending up the soundtrack so they don't want to anger up the blood of the audience. Well, it, uh, it it all depends on what the again what the audience is expecting the music to do, and one of the I yeah. think things that again I'm not dissing Zimmer is he's become he because he's become the standard. Anything mm-hmm. out, any kind of deviation, you know, is not going to make the audience happy. I mean, it's yeah, um, that's true, and, and and that's you know, and that's that's the you know familiarity breeds comfort. And until it breeds contempt, but I don't think it's breeding contempt mm. right now, but it's, it's, you know, the, the, mm. it's become mm. the standard. People want the, those, like those pounding drums and those, and those, um, you know, the, those sort of sawtooth synthesizers. Yep. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> right. You can't, you can't get enough. You can never get enough kettle drums. Right. <laughs> That should be a T-shirt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you, you, if you see Hans Zimmer for me, just you make him a T-shirt. And go, and we can never have enough kettle drums, and he would go, "I appreciate your sense of humor." Yeah, <laughs> or he'd or he'd punch me. One or the no, other. No, he seemed. He, I've the interviews I've seen with him. He seems. Uh, he seems like a passionate guy, but it looks, seems like he's got, got a sense of humor. humor. Yeah. Mm, okay. Oh. Yeah. Anyway. So, Don, did you want to talk a little more about the actual technical side of um, soundtracks, or did you have some questions about that? Uh, or do you think we've covered most of it? We got a lot more of the, uh, the the nuts and bolts than I was like even hoping to do, so that was great. Um, it's one of them things, um, when it comes to soundtracks, and again, because I kind of started with 60s movies and I remember the 70s and the 80s and then the 90s. there's always kind of this weird it seems like a push and pull between uh, marketability and appropriateness for the story because mm-hmm. I remember the first movie soundtrack that pissed me off was uh, Terminator 2 okay why well the, the big song was uh, You Could Be Mine by Guns N' Roses for the big chase scene yeah great song it is, but it's about a guy trying to get laid. And I'm like, how does this fit? Meanwhile, just around that time, mm-hmm. you know, Judas Priest had put out songs like Blood Red Skies. And I'm like, well, if you want pop music in your film, why not a show about robot song about robots killing the last human being off? Why a song about Axl Rose trying to get some? And it was that first time I realized that you've got this marketing fighting production in a lot of cases for mm-hmm. the bigger stuff. We have a Don. It, that that I mean, the use of pop music is uh, that's driven more by marketing than than any. Yeah. As you said as you said, Don, by any sense of appropriateness. I mean, yeah. if you if you mentioned you mentioned before we went on the use of music in Sir with Love, 
mm-hmm. and, and, and or in and Blackboard Jungle. Well, you know, those movies were what what at the time called youth movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. They had a youth audience and they they had soundtracks that were tailored to the to that youth market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, say what you want about Terminator 2. The people that are going to see a Terminator 2 movie are going to, to lap up a Guns N' Roses song. True. And I, I mean, whether you find that appropriate or not, Don, is is probably not the point. I mean, it, it's just, <laughs> there's just a synergy between, uh, between the music, the movie, and the audience. Yeah, I think I think in the eighties we got a little spoiled because they did that. But again, I think because like the the music video was a new thing, I noticed there was a tendency if you were going to use a pop band in your soundtrack, they would do a song specifically for that movie. Yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, no, and I, I think yeah. Once you got to like the nineties, there was a tendency to just use what was popular mm-hmm. and then kind of shoehorn it in. Right. And again, I think I think that went back to when you got into the 60s. Like I said, every horror movie had some weird beach dance number in it. And I think, again, it was that same idea where the marketing had kind of superseded production a little bit. Mm. Wait, yeah, but Don, you also have to think that every, 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 every music and mood and, and uh, of course, have to, to match. But music yeah. in the times, like, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example, Don, I've been... I've been listening to a lot of Lala Schifrin. I've mean, just been going through a big phase of listening to Lala Schifrin. And I was talking to Robbie mm-hmm. about this today. Um, mm-hmm. I have the Dirty Harry soundtrack on my on my smartphone. Um, mm-hmm. And I always liked the soundtrack to that movie. I always thought it was a great soundtrack. It's very funky. Um, it, you know, it's it very much suited to the early 70s when it came, or late yeah. 60s when it came out. I think Dirty Harry came out in 69. I mean, very much of its time. But it's written by a guy who's obviously um, has background in jazz and in classical music, and not only mm-hmm. being uh, having a background in funk. So it's a really funky soundtrack, which is what I love right. about it. But it's it, and it's um, but it's an odd. It's it's odd, because mm-hmm. like, he has, again <laughs> he's a background in classical composition and he was a jazz. All shift from played with with Dizzy Gillespie. So he was a jazz, jazz musician as well. And, mm-hmm. and yet at the same time, it sound to me, it sounds fresh, mm-hmm. familiar, and yet of its time all, all at once. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, and, and, and Lala Schifrin for that time would be making music that reflected the time in which the movie was set Mm-hmm. And the time right. which the movie that the music was uh, was popular, so mm-hmm. you know we we can often we can often know the era of a, mo- a movie even just by by the opening bars of of <laughs> um, the soundtrack. So if we again, I, yeah. I, I I've also been listening to a lot of going back and listening to a lot of John Barry. So you know. Um, a lot of his soundtrack soundtracks, of course, to the to to Bond and, and the Persuaders and Ipcris yeah. Files and things like that. The Thunderbirds, Thunderbirds, mm. um, and they they are. 
absolutely of their time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and sure. and you're you know so the, so the, that 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 twangy, um, you know that twangy guitar. You're you're like mm-hmm. oh okay well it's got to be from the twangy surf guitar. It's got to be from the early sixties. Yeah, true. So it you know it's music made of its time for its time, and yeah, and it and you may say well yeah but it 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 wasn't marketed. I'm like well, <laughs> you know what other kind of music were you going to were you going to have in the movie? Yeah, That's true. Yeah. So I I think that you know to me you know having as much as Don again I'm not. For you know, um, I'm not over, and I don't want to overwork this point. But Guns N' Roses were the biggest band at that time. Yeah, Terminator Two was going to be a summer blockbuster. There was a, yep. there was a yeah. synergy. Like, who do we get? Put GNR and T Two together, mm-hmm. and you got box office magic. Yes, you do. Yeah. It still seems kind of like a rip, though, the idea that just a few years prior, they would likely have done a new song for that film. Mm. But you kind of didn't see that. They did one of their... I can't remember if the, the... I think the song did come out on the album they did after T2 came out. Mm-hmm. But to me, it felt bad because, again, it felt like the marketing was winning. And I'm, I, I think marketing is the source of all evil in society. So that's just me, though. <laughs> Well, Don, you have to take that up with the powers that be. <laughs> and one day I shall. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think, that, Don, I I can't add anything more <laughs> than you did. <laughs> I, I just, I just, I think that that good movies um, have good soundtrack composers, and and and, and, and mm-hmm. I think the best movies work well without having. The hit song, so I'm, I'm contradicting mm, yeah. myself. I don't. I think the best movies work well without having to put a hit song in in them. But I, mm. I fully understand why you would put why you would do it. Well, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, though I tend to agree with you, Don. And I'm not sure it was the best use of the song. Yeah, mm. yeah, because you can do that. Like, there's a lot of films that are anchored in 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 their time and to use a sampling of the, the music of the day fits like again, the uh, blackboard jungle was the film that kind of mainstream rock and roll back in the fifties. And it was supposed to be about the youth culture of the day and all that. So that made sense. Um, we were talking about a uh, Saturday night fever mm-hmm. that again, it's, it's a part of that time. It's a part of that scene. It makes sense to use like the popular disco. Um, around just a few years before too, you had like American graffiti and that was kind of the vanguard of the return of like the 50s. So again, it made sense to Mm -hmm. use that, that kind of music. It it didn't feel as ad hoc as it did when you got to like the nineties and the two thousands where they would just take, okay, um, put smash mouth in. Why just do it. Okay. Smash mouth is in. And you'd hear the same, like four songs in the ads for every single movie that comes out and that kind of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. but the thing is, the thing about Saturday Night Fever that's interesting is that that music was still largely underground when the mm-hmm. movie came out. Right. So one right. of the things that's interesting about that is that that Saturday Night Fever launched a disco revolution 
into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that music had was very underground. Uh, well, mm-hmm. un- I mean underground. Um, it, it was not main. It, it, it had not gone into the mainstream because you have to think that the disco comes out of the the Philly soul sound and um, mm-hmm. and it you know and it comes out of um, you know Georgia Marauder um, and um, and Donna uh, working with Donna Summer and I Feel Love, which I think mm-hmm. is a little little later, but it was, um, but the you know disco was something that was danced in in clubs, yeah, but you got to realize that disco came uh, was not a mainstream form of music. And it, it, it became a mainstream form of music through Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, you know, it oh, was really? it was kind of it also signaled the death of of, <laughs> of disco at the same time, just because of that soundtrack was so ubiquitous. I mean, yeah. the, the the soundtrack was more ubiquitous than the movie was. Ironically, mm, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think because when you when you talk disco at the time, um, anybody who's uh so younger than us it would be a lot like techno in that you listen to it in the club but you probably didn't listen to it while you were at home yeah unless you were at the gym at the gym you might play it but it, it wasn't just listening music it was for the specific purpose of going out and dancing yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely absolutely the only thing mm-hmm. I, I i would say is um one one final thing i think we should bring up is is the way in which music, and I think we haven't really talked about this, is the way in which music comforts us. And I, I would, mm-hmm. one of the things I think I'd like to end on, gentlemen, is mm-hmm. how does music comfort you? And what are the ways in which music comforts you? Huh. That's an interesting question. Um, hmm. I guess for me, music is mostly about, um, well, there's different kinds of music, of course. I mean, um, when I was, music for me serves, I guess, two, two purposes. Uh, one would be nostalgia. I mean, you know, there's the music of my youth and everything, my formative years. And uh, there's, you know, I, I associate different times in my life with different songs um, that I heard during those times or that came out during those songs. So there's an element of nostalgia there. And also, as I've gotten older, and maybe this is natural, I'm not quite sure, I've truly come to appreciate classical music more and more. And I find classical music very relaxing and comforting. Um, okay. Referring hmm. uh, Don? to one degree or another. Yeah. Hmm. Don, how do you use I- music? And, 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 and what type of music do you use? For comfort see everything i do and enjoy that comes down to the idea that i find life to be really dry and boring and repetitive just like in general and i tend to like music that spices things up that provides a soundtrack to my boring day and i like a lot of stuff there's a lot of like bands and songs that i find inspirational mm. and it'll be like a quote or a verse that it's an idea that it's nice to hear somebody else exult because you don't hear it during the course of your day. Mm-hmm. Do you okay. do you so. do you use 
do is is music uh, a stress reliever for you then? Uh, for the most part, it's the opposite. It creates stress because I find my days anesthetizing in general. Oh, okay. So you want you want music to provoke and push and challenge you then? Yeah. He's using it yeah, as a stimulant, not as a sedative. Yeah, basically. <laughs> okay. But in a, in a funny way then, Don, is music not, in, in the way that it works on you, the way you want it to work on you, is it not then comforting? It is, because again, like I say, that's why um, it's nice to hear somebody say something that I've always felt is true, but you never, ever, ever hear. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, one line that keeps coming to mind during the course of my day and as I do stuff was from uh, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Mm. And it was the line, it's better to bleed than to need and never have dared. Okay. Because that's not what you really see. The closest you get in life is is the idea of follow your dream. And, like, we've talked about that before. That tends to be kind of hollow because there's no sense of any difficulty to that. There's no sense of you're going to have to knuckle under if you really want to live your dream. You're not just going to be Justin Bieber who gets discovered on the internet and now you're a celebrity. There's a lot of work and effort that happens in life. And you never you never hear that. Well, yeah. So so the music acts as a motivator for you. And, in, in, and, at, and acting as a motivator, it does comfort you. With its messages, yeah. even if the, even if the message is um, not inspirational. Well, it's inspirational, but it, not in an obvious way. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, would you say then, Don, that music, the music that challenges, provokes you, and pushes you, is therapeutic? Do you think that that music has a, <laughs> has therapeutic power? I've never heard guys like the meteors referred to as therapeutic, but. In in a way, it could be. I think it's more like preventative medicine. It kind of keeps you on keel before you fall into a bad place. Okay, absolutely. Yeah, Rob. For some people, um, mm. is it therapeutic? Um, it's therapeutic in the same way a uh, watching for me anyway. It's therapeutic in that yes, it can call it can produce emotions in me or make me remember things or things like that. And bring out emotions sometimes that might be a little bit uh, buried or forgotten. And in that sense, it would be therapeutic. Yeah. Sometimes music can, of course, comfort you and get you through hard times. There's no question on that. Or yeah. music can, just as music can inspire you. And so I think, yeah, that's that's definitely true. So how about you, Richard? How do you find music comforting? Um, in, in much the same, I, I, I think... Um... I think I think music is comforting for me. For and I think I will split the difference between both of you. I think it it, um, it brings back memories, but I also um, it will put me in a state of state of mind. Um, I think for me, music is comforting depending on my mood and what I'm going to use it for. So I use music very functionally. Um, and it's got to fit the mood and the environment in the experience that I'm undergoing. So I, I want to use, use ambient music to make me relax, to mm-hmm. make me, um, whereas if I need 
music um, to get me going. So something something rhythmic. Um, I think it, it can soothe you. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, they they found that 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 playing and listening music, as Don mentioned earlier, can modulate levels of dopamine, which are feel good chemicals, mm-hmm, and increased definitely. and increased. <clears throat> Level of dopamine increase levels of mood and boost the immune system. Right. So they've said that when dopamine is triggered, humans experience positive emotions and moods as a result of of uh, moods um, from playing and listening music. So it makes humans happier and healthier. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and that's uh, and that's been proven. Um, in a lot of research, so sufferers of strokes and Alzheimer's, their their memories go, uh, mm-hmm. but their love of music is the last thing to go. There are there mm-hmm. there are people who have, um, you know, who have suffered from um, strokes and from Parkinson's, mm-hmm. and um, they've been brought to life remembering the lyrics and notes of their favorite songs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there are cases of, of children with Down syndrome who can tie their shoes, who can't tie their shoes unless it's set to a sequence, uh, of music. So, and I know, I know that I just heard, um, or watched a report in which music is now being used in, um, neonatal wards. So... Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming that's not Megadeth that they're playing. No, no, that's too bad. No, no. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, you know, I mean, I, it, you know, music uh, releases oxytocin, mm-hmm. which, um, which is another um, brain chemical mm-hmm. uh, that establishes bonds between people. And so between oxytocin, serotonin, and, and dopamine, I mean, these are all legitimate brain chemicals that are released in, the, in, in, our, in our brain when we listen to and play music. So mm-hmm. I, think, right. I, think, I think all music in the end is, if it makes us healthy, healthier and happier, it, it, that can mm-hmm. only be beneficial. Probably. I mean, I could see if you can use music to produce, you know, uh, drug-like effects or produce those effects in people, you could use it to benefit them, definitely, but you could also use it to manipulate them. And you could also use it in negative ways, I would imagine, as well. Anything can be used either way. Um, Just as music, for example, the fact that, yeah, you can use music to like bring people together and bond them, going back to what I mentioned earlier about triumph of the will and such. You can use music to actually put people into a, a state where of, um, I wouldn't say, of unity in uh, nationalist ways, for example. I mean, that's, that's where, we, where we have national anthems, right? Yeah, that's one of the reasons why um, you know they they use music for marching. They music can be used in many ways to control people, Absolutely. as well as just to uh, as well to as boost things. Um, mm-hmm. So, and all of those, of course, are relevant to soundtracks. And but they're yeah. 
end to this conversation because we're talking about how you music affects people and music affects people in many different ways, positive and negative. Yeah. Absolutely. I'd like to think mostly positive, but I, but like anything, it can be used in a negative way. Yeah. Even neck miage. What's neck miage? Even neck miage. You don't watch The Simpsons? No, what's that? <laughs> I'll have to send it to you. You have to sort of see it. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. All right, so on that note, I think we should bring I, I, Actually, I, can I just... Oh, I, sure. I, I just go. want to finish with a quote here. Sure, go. Um, this is a quote from Leventon, Daniel Leventon. Um, he says that he believes that all humans are all... He believes that humans are all musical experts with music that resonates with them on an emotional level. And he says... We see this, in fact, in the way that people incorporate music into their lives. A lot of people use a certain kind of music to get to get going in the morning, to get out of bed, to get them through the exercise workout, to calm themselves down at the end of the day. We're using mm-hmm. music in the same way we use drugs, really, for emotional regulation, partly because of the way it can modulate our neurochemistry, affecting our moods. There we go. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. I think that's an excellent quote to end on. So, yep. thank you. Richard, for coming on and oh, my uh, pleasure. discussing music thank you, with Rob. us. It's been an uh, educational experience. Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you to, to you both for for having me on. And uh, the yeah. pleasure is all has all been mine. Yeah, you know so much, dude. You should teach a course on this. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. I'll, I'll, keep, I'll, I'll bear that in mind. Please do, sir. <laughs> all right. So on that note... Thanks, everyone, for listening, and tune in next time, and we'll talk about something completely awesome, and maybe have a musical soundtrack to go with it. Or not. We'll see what happens. Good night, folks. (laughs) Good night. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more, or join the conversation, come visit us at obeythedna.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya!